Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 22, The Story of Writing, Part 2. Alphabets. The discussion of alphabets will link us back to the ninth episode on the Phoenicians, because it is the Phoenicians who are accredited with the creation of the first true alphabet, a writing system with 22 symbols representing consonant sounds. There were no vowel sounds, and this was not unusual in early writing systems. Alphabets with no vowels are called abjad alphabets to distinguish them from other alphabets. This has often caused problems when such scripts have been rediscovered in the modern age and we are guessing how particular words would be pronounced. So the Israelite god Yahweh would be a terrific example of this problem and we investigated this during episode 10. The name Yahweh is actually a verbal translation of the Tetragrammaton revealed to Moses as four consonant letters, which in the later Latin alphabet are YHWH. In one respect, this has been vocalised as Yahweh, and in another respect, it has been vocalised as Jehovah. We can see that kind of confusion with the translation of abjad alphabet words in modern society. We do not have a recording of how the word was pronounced, therefore we have to insert our own vowel sounds. The Phoenician alphabet is believed to have derived from a form of writing which emerged from Egypt, where we know that they used Egyptian hieroglyphs. Initially, it would seem improbable that this would be the case with Levantine languages being Semitic and unrelated to Egyptian language. But we do have evidence of a proto-Sinaitic writing system which appears to be a link between the two, which demonstrates that Egyptian cultural influence was creeping into Levantine societies as the Egyptian and Asiatic cultures came into contact frequently during the 2nd millennium BCE. The Phoenicians would travel far and wide with their alphabetic system in good use throughout their record-keeping, something that would have stirred interest among the cultures who became familiar with it, who obviously would have admired its practicality and questioned why their own writing systems were not more alphabetic. The main seafaring trade rivals of the Phoenicians were the Greeks, but despite being trade rivals, there would have been trade partnerships. There would have been 
no political stance between the Greeks and the Phoenicians around the turn of the first millennium BCE due to the fact that they were not nation-states. Greeks were not united after the disappearance of the Mycenaean culture as they had gone back to being pockets of societies more resembling of a cluster of city-states but they may have collectively called the societies of the Levant Phoenicians as it is a Greek word. We do know that the Phoenicians themselves did not see themselves as a collective society but also would have been a collection of city-states themselves. What we actually find is that city-states in close proximity to one another would have a shared culture, even if they didn't see themselves as a united people. You can certainly say this about both the Greeks and Phoenicians during this period. It does appear though that the people of Greek lands were very interested in this practical alphabet of the Phoenicians the Greeks would adopt this alphabet and alter it. However, the two alphabets are very similar indeed, so the migration is very difficult to challenge. However, the Greeks were not keen on the absence of vowels from the Phoenician alphabet, so they decided to add some. They did this by altering some of the existing Phoenician letters. So the Phoenician letter He, which was the H sound that we likely find twice in the tetragrammaton that represents Yahweh was changed into an E sound in the Greek alphabet where it becomes the letter Epsilon. The Phoenician letter He looks like the mirror image of the Greek letter Epsilon which English speakers will recognise as their own letter E. However, it has retained its consonant qualities in the modern Semitic Abjad languages, such as Hebrew and Arabic, where it contains its hard H sound. The Greeks would also need to create letters to represent some of the consonant sounds that existed in their own language, but not in the language of the Phoenicians. The fact that the Greek letter Epsilon is a mirror image of the Phoenician letter He is also of significance. Phoenician texts were written from right to left with their original Abjad alphabet and we can see that this tradition continues with the modern day Abjads of Hebrew, Arabic and Syriac. It appears that at some point the Greeks decided to write their texts in a Baustrophedon style which means that they would write one line from right to left and the following line from left to right. It wouldn't be unusual to see letters taking on a mirror form of themselves on the left to right lines and when Greek writing assumed its current left to right format on a permanent basis, these mirror image letters that we are more familiar with today started to be used permanently. Roman alphabet. The Greek alphabet, as expected in such a disjointed society, had local variants, so the alphabet would differ, albeit not too dramatically, from one side of Greek lands to the other. 
the Greeks established many colonies throughout the northern coastal lands of the Mediterranean, so there was a definite cultural expansion during the first millennium BCE. Members of Greek societies decided to make a home of the Italian peninsula further west, and those that settled the west coast of this peninsula were retrospectively referred to as Etruscans. They were distinct but also culturally linked to the emerging Roman society further south, and while the Romans congealed into what would become a nation-state, the Etruscans remained more tribal by comparison. Those Greeks who settled the lands that would become the Etruscan lands would bring their alphabet with them. Modern Greek language would continue to evolve in Greek lands, so the Etruscan alphabet was an evolution of an early form of the Greek language. In fact, it was so early that the left-to-right writing system had not yet been confirmed as Etruscan can be found written in more than one direction. However, the left-to-right style appears to have been fully adopted when the Romans took the Etruscan alphabet and used it for their own language. The original Roman alphabet evolved over time, with 21 Etruscan letters being used. The Etruscan alphabet itself had evolved over a few hundred years that it had travelled from Greek lands to the Italian peninsula. Over time, these 21 letters were expanded upon as the Romans conquered more lands and acquired loanwords from other cultures that would use vocal sounds not represented in the Roman alphabet. This is how the letters Y and Z were stuck onto the end of the Roman alphabet that we know of today. If you remember, the Y and W of Yahweh did not make it to the Roman equivalent name Jehovah as the Y and W sounds were not represented in the early Roman alphabet. The Y was added when the Romans acquired Greek lands within their empire and the W was added even later when the Roman alphabet came into contact with Germanic languages. It would be thanks to the success of the Roman Empire that the Roman alphabet is the most widely used script in the modern world. Many European languages would adopt it in front of their travels around the world. Asia is the only continent in the modern world where the Roman alphabet is not dominant. Parchment and Codex Much as we have referred to the emergence of papyrus as a bed for writing on, this was not the only thing that the Egyptians evidently used. There is evidence of animal hides that have been written on from the 2nd millennium BCE and mentions that the Egyptians of the earlier 3rd millennium BCE were also writing on leather. This would constitute the earliest known forms of parchment. Parchment is much more perishable than stone or clay, so we shouldn't be too surprised to find that most written artefacts from this period are preserved on clay and stone. Papyrus production was the preferred method of creating writing material in ancient Egypt, but after the Greeks invaded Egypt and established the Hellenistic Ptolemaic Kingdom, 
writing became more and more commonplace. As such, the papyrus reeds were in mass use, especially with projects such as the Great Library of Alexandria. Papyrus was becoming over-harvested, and as such there was no ability for exports. Hellenistic societies of Anatolia would have to turn to parchment as its preferred material for writing, and the Anatolian city of Pergamon became well known for its mass production of the product. So much so that the name Pergamon is cognate with the word parchment and is the reason why parchment is called parchment. Another form of writing that may have emerged in Greek lands during the first millennium BCE was the use of wax tablets. Wax can refer to any wax-like substance which can be naturally produced in a number of ways and the most practical instances can be utilised by smearing a thin layer of wax on a wooden tablet which inscriptions that may refer to trade transactions being recorded by writing on the wax with a stylus. Sometimes these wax tablets could be hinged together and carried as a book of tablets. This method of binding multiple writing beds together would be further advanced by the Romans who produced the first codices. A codex or codices in their plural form are one of the first types of proper book and they were produced by the Romans. They would collate pieces of parchment or papyrus to form these codices. This would be an alternative to the scroll which may not have been easy to produce for lengthy pieces of work and if multiple scrolls were in use for one piece of work then they could be easily separated. With the codex the papers were bound together against a spine which would hold the entire structure together and the more durable material that was used for the spine could be useful as a cover for the whole thing and therefore we have the modern concept of a book. Brahmi script. Now the revolutionary Phoenician alphabet would not just have influence westwards across the lands of the Mediterranean. Such was the practicality that its influence would also spread eastwards. An early evolution of the Phoenician alphabet in Asiatic lands was the Aramaic alphabet. Now we have encountered the Aramaeans before and it was in the aftermath of the late Bronze Age collapse. The Aramaean peoples gained from the disappearance of Assyrians from their empire which dominated the lands of northern Mesopotamia towards the end of the second millennium BCE at a similar time to the emergence of the Phoenician alphabet. As we have discovered before, the Assyrian empire reduced its size considerably after the late Bronze Age collapse and would be focused on protecting its core cities of Ashur and Nineveh. The Arameans would expand into the void, making a menace of themselves to everybody around them, including the Assyrians, the Israelites and the Babylonians. Their heartlands adjacent to the Phoenician city-states would enable them to enjoy the benefits of their innovative alphabet, and so the adoption of it and the subsequent expansion of their cultural influence meant that the Aramean alphabet that would evolve 
would go on to become significant. The new empires of Assyria, Babylon and Persia would all adopt Aramean language and script and the Hebrews would adopt the script and have their language influenced by Aramean too. Now, despite this happening in the Near East, something else was happening in the Indus Valley and ancient India. The emergence of a new script over a thousand years after the Indus script was known to exist in this region of the world, something we mentioned last week. Now, we believe that it was around this time that the Achaemenid Persians came into contact with Indus Valley societies. The Persians extended their eastern border and influence to the Indus River and historians have been asking the question whether the Aramean language of the Achaemenid Persians had any influence on the emergence of what we now call the Brahmi script. The earliest evidence of Brahmi script dates to around the 4th century BCE. Brahmi script does appear to demonstrate connections with some of the characters of the Aramean alphabet but it also does appear to be distinct which you can't necessarily say about Arabic and Syriac which do seem more closely related when making glancing observations. So it could be that the societies of the Indus Valley from the middle of the first millennium BCE adopted the concept of the Aramean alphabet and utilised it to script their own local language which is represented in the modern world by Tamil and Kannada as well as the ancient language of Sanskrit. Brahmi script is significant because its influence on South Asian scripts is considerable. It has migrated, evolved and diversified for many, many hundreds of years. Descendants of Brahmi script are called the Brahmic scripts and Brahmic scripts are very common in the modern world. Much of modern India write in Brahmic scripts, as well as Southeast Asia, the Indonesian islands, Sulawesi and the Philippines. Mayan writing. Most of the primary advances in human society occur in and around Northeast Africa and the Near East. We then see Mediterranean lands, the lands of the Indus, and the lands of the Chinese rivers advance very shortly afterwards. Following this, we see the territorial extremities, such as the lands of the Americas, embrace the cultural advances. So, did the people of the Americas start writing as well? What we discover in the Americas, with focus on what we have discovered during these last two podcasts, and with focus on what we have discovered during the entire History of the World podcast can potentially tell us a lot about what writing truly is and the nature of Homo sapiens, the human being that we are today. One of the most notable earliest known scripts of the lands of the Americas is the script of the Mayans. We are grateful of the work of philologists of the 20th century that we have been able to decipher this script of Mesoamerica. Due to their work, we can identify that Mayan script was a combination of logograms and syllabic that dates back to around 300 BCE. Firstly, the logograms, which we have already discovered as pictures of ideas. 
the comic book style series of pictures that link together to tell a story. This is similar to Egyptian hieroglyphs. Both these forms of writing appear to link closely to the advances of prehistoric cave and ceramic art. Now, there are other forms of script that have been discovered in the Americas from prehistoric times and they do seem to be glyphic to some degree. Let me explain what that means. So let's say for example that I wanted to tell you about a man who left his village, got on a boat, rowed to an island and then walked to the centre of the island. I could draw a picture of the village then a picture adjacent to it of a man rowing a boat, then a picture of the island with footprints on it. You might be able to understand the story simply by looking at the images without me giving you any vocal assistance whatsoever. If this story is inscribed onto something that lasts longer than I do, then my story will live longer than me, provided that you understand the story. The part of the story that is interesting are the footprints. You will be able to look at these and determine that I am describing the act of someone walking. The fact that there are more than two footprints, even though there is only one man with two feet, demonstrates locomotion. So I have conveyed the idea of a man walking without actually drawing a walking man and simply drawing the image of a foot which is a type of symbol. Now, the modern way for me to tell this story without speaking it is to write it or to type it using the 26 glyphs of the Latin alphabet, which are more commonly called letters. The question is, do my drawings of feet also represent glyphs? A tablet-sized rock made from serpentinite, was discovered in Mexico and is believed to date as far back as the ancient Olmec culture, the first complex society of the Americas. So this predates Mayan script by more than 500 years. The block has over 60 glyphs inscribed upon it and some of them are repeated. We don't know the meaning of the glyphs, but we do believe that they are glyphs, and so they may represent a point where art became writing. The rock is known to us today as the Cascajal block. The concept of the footprints, which are used as an example of when a picture becomes a glyph, was actually stolen from a pre-Columbian codex of the Aztec civilization. The Aztecs were in Mesoamerica from the 14th to the 16th century. The Aztec codices are not quite like the bound Roman codices as they are actually a folded up sheet. The Aztec writing had not moved on much from its ancient ancestors such as the Zapotec and Mayan scripts in that it was also a combination of logograms and syllabic glyphs. However, it is the concept of syllabic glyphs that demonstrates that writing and the very nature of writing and alphabetic and glyphic scripts itself must have developed independently and in different areas of the world, not unlike agriculture. So this demonstrates 
that the recording of information using script was a natural progression of urban civilised societies and that the simplification of this process was necessary to make it as practical as possible. During the Common Era So we have pretty much covered the major instances of emergence of ancient script and writing. The Latin alphabet, which we are all familiar with today, was not the first known alphabet of Germanic-speaking peoples and Scandinavian peoples. They had already developed an alphabetic system called runes, which were ultimately replaced by the Latin alphabet. The irony being that the runic system evolved from the early alphabets of the Italian peninsula too, so you could argue that runic alphabets were supplanted by a cousin alphabet. To the east of Phoenicia, the Aramaic alphabet had evolved to give us the early forms of the Syriac and Arabian scripts that we know today during the first millennium. The emergence and expansion of Islamic cultures would enable Arabic script to become familiar from the coasts of northwest Africa right across to the Far East and Southeast Asia from its Near Eastern origin. So it is one of the more successful alphabets of the modern world. Much as the Arabic alphabet reached China, it would not replace the Chinese logographic script which derived from the oracle bone script which we have previously spoken of. This script would evolve and survive to the modern day but another thing that the Chinese do not get enough credit for is their printing. Now, when we talk about the history of literature and writing, one of the greatest innovations that is on a par with the creation of the internet in modern times was the introduction of the printing press during medieval times. However, this was not the earliest known form of printing by a long way. The first known printing was made using wood blocks and it was developed in China maybe in around the year 200. Generally, the Chinese would print onto textiles but they also began to print on paper. Now paper is also something that when traced back to its earliest evidence also points us towards this period of Chinese history. So the Chinese made significant advances in the materials of record keeping. The Chinese would use plant fibres and through a long process of preparation, straining and compression they would produce sheets of paper. This style of paper production was much more widely available than papyrus and parchment and would ultimately become the world's preferred material for writing. It would take its name from papyrus as it would serve the same practical purpose even though papyrus is actually the name of the plant from which papyrus is made. As is the case with Chinese, not every culture has an alphabet. Modern Chinese script has over 3,000 glyphs which make up its modern script. Japanese, however, goes one stage further. Japanese script has been influenced by a variety of local scripts, mainly that of the Chinese script, but through the ages this has resulted in a writing system that contains over 
50,000 characters. Now, it is certainly not possible for Japanese script to be fully learned by anyone, but children are encouraged to learn at least a couple of thousand. It also presents a problem in the 21st century world of internet communication, where it has been necessary to promote the use of Romanized Japanese, which is Japanese language written with the Latin alphabet. This style of Japanese is called Romaji and is learned in the schools of Japan despite its unusual nature. This will at least make it possible for Japanese conversation to be communicated using a modern computer keyboard. The traditional Japanese script was adapted from Chinese writing from the 5th century. Coming back to Europe and as we mentioned, alphabets were a difficult thing to control and when it touched a new society who spoke in a different tongue, they may adopt the alphabet but then they might change it, either deliberately or inadvertently, over time. Standards were introduced, such as the Carolingian minuscule, which would attempt to standardise the way in which the Latin alphabet was written, which would be very important to maintain its universal integrity. This was especially important as more and more people were encouraged to become literate, especially in the monasteries where they would go to great efforts to illuminate their scriptures with decorative borders and a large decorated capital letter at the start, which would be infused with gold leaf and a variety of coloured dyes in many cases. It was a 9th century Byzantine monk who would create the first Slavic alphabet, simply because the Latin and Greek alphabets did not quite suit the vocal sounds of the language in the central eastern European lands of Moravia. The monk's name was Saint Cyril, and as such, the alphabet is called the Cyrillic alphabet. Still in use today, in Russia and many other ex-Soviet Union countries, and also Bulgaria, Serbia and North Macedonia. Certainly in the last 600 years we have seen more advancements with standardised alphabetic glyphs produced for the purpose of producing printed works through the use of the press and subsequently when the typewriter was introduced during the 19th century. Fountain pens would replace quills as the primary writing stylus and with the introduction of email messaging during the 1970s we would accelerate into a world of word processors, computer keyboards and text messaging. Next time, on the History of the World podcast, we're going back to the chronology and we're going to Europe to explore one of the earliest civilizations to emerge, the Minoans of the island of Crete. Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast, the second in a two-parter on the story of writing. As ever, if you enjoy the podcast, then why not consider supporting the podcast? If you go to our webpage, thehistoryoftheworldpodcast.com and navigate to the Support Us button, then it will take you to the Patreon page where you can choose to make a monthly donation. And there are small Uh, rewards for those of you who are kind enough to do that however if you 
don't want to make any financial donations for the upkeep of the podcast, then by all means, please do rate and review the podcast. It's vitally important that we get as much ratings and reviews as possible in order to propel us up the charts and gain more listeners who, in turn, might potentially choose to make financial donations. The financial donations really do help me to keep this podcast going. There are a lot of materials and commitments that are required for me to pay for in order to keep the podcast going. So any financial contributions are very gratefully received. I received a nice email from Gunnar Langer, uh, or Gunnar Lange. I'm not sure how you pronounce your name. I'm, I'm sorry for that. Um, I'm going to sort of paraphrase it a little bit. It says, uh, Chris, I've come to your podcast through your intro on Ryan Stitt's The History of Ancient Greece podcast. I remember doing that one. Uh, I'm usually fully dedicated to podcasts about the classical and Bronze Age world, anything Mycenae, Homer related, uh, then through classical Athens up to the fall of Rome. But also being into anything history in general, popular history we call it. And I thought your podcast might be good to fill in all the yawning gaps that I have in my general knowledge, and indeed it turned out to be. Your podcast is really well done, your nice voice and the friendly accent, and let's not underestimate this, the relatively slow speed at which you speak are great and ideal for podcasting. Also, your headlines, announced in this somewhat out-of-this-world spacey tone, are very helpful to anyone listening while on the go. Now, a couple of things Gunnar mentioned, which I will put over to you. Uh, one thing that um, was put forward that um, when uh, Gunnar's out running, uh, he can't uh, he can't really um, hear the podcast properly, um, even at full volume. So I do try and tweak the podcast volume here and there, and I have changed it and altered it over time. But I am interested, if anyone is having problems listening to the podcast, if the volume doesn't turn up high enough, um, there might be something that I can do to investigate that. So it is worth mentioning it. Or if any particular podcast episode seems a bit quieter than the others, I'd like to know about it because there's probably something that I can do about it without having to go to the trouble of re-recording it all over again. I can probably adjust the existing sound file and make it a little bit louder when I save it. So do please let me know. Uh, one thing he also said is that he doesn't mind longer episodes. So like this, uh, you know, even an hour or two. The one thing that makes, I think, the history of the podcast attractive, um, and uh, like I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, is the fact that we are able to uh, to publish a podcast every week, almost religiously every week, and I want to maintain the upkeep of that. If I was to extend to any more than 30 or 45 minutes... I think that I would be stretching myself a little bit too much and I'd probably end up letting my listening public down by not publishing an episode some week. So I think uh, the 30 to 45 minutes, some people have actually praised me for that length of podcast. So it is difficult. It's difficult to get it right for everybody, but it's a valid point. And if you don't bring up the things that you're um, you know that you think could be improved at the, about the podcast, and we may never know if we've if we're missing out on something. So it's definitely worth speaking up if you've got an opinion about the podcast. Uh, 
So I do genuinely thank uh, Gunnar for his email and for what he's put in it. The, the last thing he put is um, the one thing that I look for in a broader history podcast is the covered difference of cultures and ge- geographies in parallel if they were active at the same time. For example, what went on in ancient China and South America at the same time as the ancient Greeks etc maybe this is something you can tackle but yeah i mean this is really what it is the history of the world podcast is a is a popular history of our world so um by its very definition uh, if we didn't cover china and south america and didn't tell you what was going on in their societies at the same time that all this was wonderful stuff was going on in mesopotamia and uh in europe in egypt then we put, we wouldn't be doing the title of the podcast any justice in my mind. So uh, definitely, yes, we will be uh, covering those uh, areas, the Indus Valley, uh, Europe, China and the Americas before we end this ancient volume. Now, obviously, there are many ways that you can interact with the podcast. You don't have to send me an email. You can get involved with the Facebook page the Twitter page. We're just trying to start up an Instagram page at the moment and uh, all of the links can be found on the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. And, um, you know, if you, let's say, if you follow us on Facebook, then why not share one of the History of the World podcast posts, show your friends what you're listening to, what wonderful intellectual material you're listening to and invite them to do the same, invite them to get involved. Um, there's no reason not to do it. So there we go, rather a nice round off. Uh, Don't forget to get in touch with the podcast, don't forget to rate and review the podcast, and uh, next week we're back to the chronologies, we're going to go all the way to Minoan Crete uh, before venturing on to Mycenaean Greece, finding out exactly what happened to them at the end of of the late Bronze Age when the late Bronze Age collapse occurred and the Trojan Wars but next week Minoan Crete don't miss it The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms so please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.